Now, would you turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, and uh, chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 22, Luke chapter 2 and verse 22. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your heart, your soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Amen. And we know that God always blesses the reading of his own inspired word. So, as usual in the week before Christmas, we drop off our regular exposition. We've been going through 1 Corinthians. We're dropping that, and we're focusing upon events surrounding the incarnation of our Lord. And this year, I want to focus upon this old man, Simeon, who greeted our Lord when Mary and Joseph presented him at the temple Forty days after the birth of a child, Jewish parents were required by the law to offer a sacrifice for purification. And a firstborn male child to pay, uh, for a firstborn male child to pay five shekels to the priests when the child was presented at the temple. Now, the normal sacrifice for purification was a one year old lamb and either a dove or a pigeon. However, the same law in Leviticus chapter 12 stated that if a family was poor, instead of a a lamb and a bird, two birds could be offered instead. And that was known as the offering of the poor. Now notice in verse 24, Mary and Joseph sacrificed two birds. And that was a public demonstration, a public declaration, a public confession of their poverty. Indeed, the rabbis taught that if a rich man made such a sacrifice, that sacrifice would be unacceptable to God. So our Lord was born into an extremely poor family. He was nursed by a poor mother. He was provided for by a poor father. He lived in a poor house in a poor district. He ate a poor person's food. He wore a poor man's clothes and shared in all of a poor man's troubles. And let us remember, this was our Lord who was rich beyond all splendor and for love's sake became a 
poor. Such marvelous condescension that our Lord identified with the lowest, the poorest in society. Now, it was while in the temple that Mary and Joseph encountered this man, Simeon. And I want you to notice three things about him. First of all, the hope that was realized, the hope that was realized. Simeon, it seems, was an old man, for although we're not explicitly told that in the text, it would seem okay to deduce that from the words of verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That his lifelong waiting for the Lord's Christ had now been realized, and he was not only ready to die, he was due to die. We are told that he was uh, righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's a, that's a lovely way of putting it, isn't it? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The dictionary defines consolation as a source of comfort in a time of suffering, grief, and disappointment. And to be sure, it was a time of grief and disappointment in Israel. They had lost their independence as a nation, and they were governed by Rome. To add to their humiliation, they were locally governed by that wicked, cruel, tyrannical king, King Herod, who was an Edomite and ought never have been sitting on the throne, a throne in Israel, which was promised, remember, to David and his descendants. Religion had been greatly externalized through the small but influential sect of the, the Pharisees. And the words of Isaiah could be applied to many in that generation. These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The Sadducees, who were part of the Sanhedrin, the religious aristocracy, were liberal. They were anti-supernatural. They dismissed belief in the resurrection, in the afterlife, and in angels. The voice of prophecy had been silent for 400 years. It seemed that God had nothing to say to his people. But in the midst of all that darkness, declension and despair, there were men and women of faith earnestly expecting, eagerly anticipating, uh, hopefully believing patiently waiting that God would fulfill his promise in their day and generation and send the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, to comfort his people. Simeon was one, Anna was another, but there were others also. But in one sense, Simeon was unique because God had specifically and explicitly revealed to him that he would see the promised Messiah before he died. Look at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him through the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christ remembers the Greek word uh, of the Old Testament word Messiah, that he would see the Lord's Christ. Now, this is a, re a remarkable thing, because remember, the voice of prophecy had been silent for 400 years. From the close of the Old Testament to the announcement of John the Baptist, God did not speak. And yet, here is a man who received a revelation from God that he would see the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, before he died. Now, think about that for a moment. 
As a young man, uh, perhaps uh, the Holy Spirit had come upon him and given him spiritual appetites and spiritual desires. He dedicates his life to the service of God and regularly visits the temple to pray and to worship. He's not a priest. He's not a Levite, so he's under no obligation to be there outside the regular times of the services. One day, perhaps uh, as he's worshiping, God speaks to him. How he speaks, what he says, we're not told. But the Lord reveals to him through the Holy Spirit that the Messiah would come during his lifetime. Then many years later, perhaps as an old man, the Spirit suddenly comes upon him again and guides him through the temple courts to this young family who are making this uh, poor man's sacrifice for their firstborn child. And the Spirit reveals to him that the child that they held in their arms was the Lord's Christ. His years of waiting were over. His patience was rewarded. His hopes were realized. His long-for Messiah had come. What a joy that must have been. What, what peace must have flooded his soul as he uh, held that little child in his arms. He had seen with his own eyes, held in his own arms, blessed with his own voice, the Lord's Christ. Now, notice verse 25 tells us that he was righteous and devout. The authorized version says just and devout. Now, that ought to come as no great shock to us. You see, there was this powerful motivation, this powerful incentive in his life to be righteous and devout, to be godly, and to live a life that is pleasing to God. He knew that the Messiah would come during his lifetime, and he was ready for him. He lived his life in such a way that he anticipated the coming of the Lord's Christ. He was righteous before men, and he was devout before God. Now, that ought to be our response as we think and meditate upon the second coming of Christ. John says in 1 John 3 and verse 3, everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. So everyone who has this hope of the coming again of the Lord Jesus, his response is to purify himself. Simeon was righteous and devout, for he knew that during his life the Christ would come. Now, we don't know the time of the Lord's return, and it's foolish to speculate when he will return, because Jesus himself said, no man knows the hour or the day, not even the angels of, in heaven, nor even the Son himself, but only the Father. We don't know when he will return, but we know it will happen and we know that we ought to expect it and look forward to it, and we ought to live our lives in the light of it. The doctrine of the second coming is not intended to tickle our ears, but to change our lives. It's not there to uh, arouse our curiosity, but it is there as an incentive to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. Jesus will come again. As the angel said to the disciples as they stood transfixed by the ascension of the Lord Jesus from the Mount of Olives, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky, this same Jesus, 
who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. In other words, he will come personally, he will come visibly, and also he will come triumphantly. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is a, a powerful incentive that ought to inspire us and motivate us to live just like Simeon, righteous and devout lives. It was Lord Shaftesbury, the great social reformer, who did so much good for the kingdom of God, who and, and was such an effective witness for his faith, who wrote, I do not think in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious moment that was not influenced in some way by the thought of the return of the Lord. I do not think that I've lived one moment without that conscious thought that the Lord will return. So Simeon was a man who lived his life in the light of the promise given to him personally that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ. What a joy it must have been to him when his eyes fixed upon Jesus, that his hopes were realized. Secondly, notice the faith that was exercised. We're told in verse 28 that Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, the Nuctimidus, which is Latin for the first two words that appear in verse 28. Now dismiss your servant in peace. That's where that comes from. And he praises God for the coming of salvation. Look at verse 30. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Do you see that? For my eyes have seen your salvation. I remember who his eyes were looking at. Remember who his eyes were fixed upon. They were fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a one-month-old baby laying helplessly in his arms. He realized that God's salvation was bound up in that child that he held in his arms. Now, it would be hard, wouldn't it, to, be, to, to trust in a four- or five-week-old baby for salvation. And that's the amazing, remarkable nature of Simeon's faith, that he trusted in the baby that he held in his arms for salvation. Notice three things about the trust. Notice he trusted in baby Jesus as his personal Savior. I have added in baby Jesus from the PowerPoint, but I do that deliberately. I don't use that in a a saccharine, sentimental way to reflect this time of year, because the greatness of his faith is that he trusted in a baby. Look at verses 29 to 30. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You see, after seeing this infant, Jesus he realized that his eyes had seen God's salvation. And therefore, he was ready to die, and he was willing to die. The word for at the beginning of verse 30 is very important. Dismiss your servant of peace for, for. Here's the reason why. For my eyes have seen your salvation. 
The reason why he was ready to die was because he had seen his salvation. Now, death for many is a frightening experience. The author, Samuel Johnson, once said, no rational man can die without uneasy apprehension. Now, Simeon was rational, all right, but his faith and confidence in that baby in his arms enabled him to die in peace. He uses a word here that was used of a slave that was being released from his shekels. He wanted to be released from his earthly pilgrimage and be allowed to go home. Was he old, frail, weak, racked with pain? We can't absolutely be sure, but we do know that he was ready and happy to die. And many Christians since have experienced that same peace in the face of death. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, just as before he died, he said, Ah, is this dying? I, how I have dreaded as an enemy this smiling friend. And Arthur Wood, the founder of the National Young Life Campaign, from which Beach Mission sprung, he said, My happiest moment will be when God puts his hand on my heart and stops it beating. You know, last Friday when Joey died, there was a, a serious accident in the A26 that I got stuck in traffic on the way up to the hospital uh, in, at Kells. And I was praying that I would get to see Joey just before he died. And then I got a text from one of the granddaughters to say that he had already died. But when I arrived at the hospital, that same granddaughter, Lauren, told me that she had held his hand and Joey kept praying over and over again, Lord, take me home, take me home, take me home. Christian, a year and a half, year and a half, but he was ready to die because he knew the Lord's salvation, the Lord's salvation. Are you ready to die? He trusted in the baby Jesus as a personal savior. He trusted in the baby Jesus as a universal savior. Look at verses 31 and 32, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now, that's a remarkable statement to be found on the lips of a, a Jew steeped in the traditions of first century Judaism. To many, the coming of the Messiah would bring judgment on the Gentiles. They expected some kind of military celestial superhero who would trample down the Romans and restore the fortunes of Israel and expand Israel's influence and kingdom, restore the glory of Solomon's reign. To many Jews, Gentiles, as the rabbis taught, were only created to fuel the fires of hell. And yet here is a man who is steeped in that tradition and sees that God sending Jesus included the Gentiles also, all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. You and I as Gentiles always ought to be grateful for that, always ought to be grateful for the expansion of God's mercy in the new covenant that reaches to the ends of the world. That as Gentiles, that we have been grafted into the true Israel, and that by faith we are children of Abraham, and that we are New Testament Jews just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were Old Testament Christians. 
This is a remarkable statement from the lips of Simeon that salvation would have a universal application, that it would go out into all the world, that on the day of judgment that there would be people before his throne gathered from every tribe and language, people and nation. What a revelation! What a statement that he made! That He trusted in Jesus as a personal Savior, as a universal Savior, and as a divine Savior. Look at the expression at the end of verse 32, and for glory to your people Israel. Glory to your people Israel. In the Old Testament, God revealed his presence by the Shekinah glory, so that when he was present in the tabernacle or in the temple, then this this light would emanate, indicating that his awesome presence was there, that God was there, that God dwelt uh, among his people, the Shekinah glory. And here we are told that this baby would be glory to your people, not for, glory to your people, Israel. It wasn't the fact that that he would uh, restore the fortunes and the glory of Israel, but that he would be glory, that he would be, as Callum read to us, the, the radiance, the outshining of God, that he would be God in flesh, that he would be God manifested in flesh, that Jehovah, that Yahweh had come to dwell with his people and glory resulted, that, 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 that Simeon held glory in his hands. He was God of very God. No wonder we're told in verse 33 that his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, that this, this baby was glory, was glory, the shining of God, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, that he was Emmanuel, God with us, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, heal the incarnate deity. Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. Simeon would say, forgive the poetry. poetry. Who is he that my eyes do see? Who on earth could he be? Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. This little baby was glory for the people of Israel. He was God in flesh. The hope that was realized, the faith that was exercised, and then the future that was prophesied. In verses 34 and 35, we find Simeon, after blessing Joseph and Mary, spoke directly to Mary. And he says in verse 35 that Jesus would be the catalyst for revealing what would be in the hearts of men. Verse 35, so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. In other words, the spiritual condition of any individual, men, women, young people, boys and girls, will be revealed in their attitude to Jesus. And that response would not always be uniform because he would be cause the, the falling and rising of many, that many will uh, speak against him, many will uh, 
oppose him, this child will not be universally accepted. A sharp division will occur in uh, people's response to Jesus. And we know that was true in his life. As a child, wise men sought him to worship him. Herod sought him to murder him. During his life, men ran to him with reverence and others ran to him with rage. Some were captivated by his teaching and others were aggravated at his teaching and even at his cross. One thief blasphemes against him and the other embraces him. And this is what Simeon says, a sign, verse 34, that is opposed. He will cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. That neutrality would be impossible when it came to this baby, <laughs> when it came to the Lord Jesus Christ. People would either be for him or against him. And the condition of their hearts will be revealed by their response to them. And the same thing is true today. And the same thing is true even in this congregation this morning. So there are maybe young people that have grown up into this, this congregation and you, were, you heard the stories of Jesus as a child and he fascinated you. He, he warmed your heart. You were drawn to him. But then you reached those cranky teenage years. You thought to yourself about the implications of following Christ, that it involves a radical separation from sin, a radical life of self-denial, and involves a radical faith in, in Him as Lord and Savior. And you say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm not prepared for that. And so you fall, you stumble at the mention of his name. You, you are repelled by him. You're, you turn from him. You say with the, the people of Jerusalem, we will not have this man rule over us. And then there are other people and they grow up and their, their love for Jesus blossoms and it's like a flower that opens and they they find more and more that they're drawn to him and, and faith rises within them and devotion and love for Jesus rises and they surrender all to him and they offer themselves up as sacrifice, living sacrifices, pinning their hopes for eternal salvation upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Humble yourselves in, in the presence of God and he will lift you up. That's what the, the Bible teaches. So, so he divides, he divides, he will divide. He will cause the falling and the rising of many. What's your response to Jesus? What's your response this Christmas time to the message that stands behind Christmas? That Jesus is just an irritation, something that you just have to put up with in order to get the best out of the season? Or do you see it as the greatest miracle that this world has ever known that God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, enfleshed himself and came into our world and we beheld his glory, that the one that was conceived in Mary's womb, that the one who was led in the manger, that the one who, who was held in Simeon's arm was the glory, the glory of Israel. So Jesus will reveal hearts. And then uh, lastly, he will break hearts. Look at verse 35. A sword will pierce your own soul too. 
Simeon prophesies great sorrow for Mary. This child was destined for greatness, but that greatness would be achieved by immense suffering. A sword would pierce her soul also. The original indicates a, a broad sword, a symbol of intense pain, of terrifying anguish. We know that when Mary stood at the cross and looked at her suffering son, dying the humiliating death that he died, that a sword, a sword was pulled through her soul. It was agonizing for her to watch her son die in the way that he did. And, and even Jesus was filled with compassion towards his mother because you remember he said to John, behold your mother and to Mary, behold your son. Well, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Because Mary had other sons and daughters that would, would look after her and care for her. Why did he say to John, behold your mother and to Mary, behold your son? Because she was wounded deeply spiritually and none of the children were believers. None of the brothers and sisters of Jesus at that point believed in him. And so our Lord, realizing the pain that Mary was going through, needed somebody in her life that would minister to her spiritual needs and bring healing to her broken heart. And so even though he's bearing sin in his own body on that tree, he looks at his mother and he provides spiritual sustenance and care and pastoral care for her. It's beautiful. But notice that little word, also. A sword will pierce your own soul also. The NIV says, two, two. That Mary's anguish would be because of the suffering that her son experienced. And the jigsaw was beginning to come together. Mary was promised by Gabriel, a child whose kingdom would never end. Joseph was told this child would save his people from their sins. And now Mary is told how that salvation would be accomplished, that he would suffer, that a sword would be pulled through, driven through his soul. That the cross was no afterthought, no accident, no misfortune. It was the very reason that Jesus came into the world. It was central to the plan of God. And if Jesus is responsible for the rising of many, it was necessary that he would go to the cross, that he would bear that pain in his soul when he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, that that sword would be drawn through his soul too. What's in your heart this morning then? What's your attitude to Jesus He's the one who reveals what's in the hearts of people. He reveals what's in their hearts. How do you respond to his birth, his life, his death? Is he the rock at which you stumble, at which you fall? I will not have this man rule over us. Or is he the one that draws you and attracts you and pulls you in and that your faith rises and your love for Jesus rises and he becomes the focus of your affection, your trust, and your faith. That's the future that was prophesied. The hope that was realized, the faith that was exercised, remarkable faith. 
and the future that was prophesied. Amen.